This is agency has seized a parcel under your name which was shipped through Canada Post using your identity. The parcel contains illegal components. There is an arrest warrant already issued under your name. To talk to an officer from Canada Border Services Agency, please press 1 and hold the line. Welcome to another episode of Sound Digressions. Here we are again after a, a hiatus. <laughs> a few weeks off, uh, but here I am again talking about um, SARS-CoV-2. What else? What else would I talk about? <laughs> the pandemic is nearly over, but it's also nowhere near over. <laughs> and... Uh, say the same about me <laughs> and my interest on this subject. <laughs> Enjoy! This has probably been the longest time in a while. period without recording a new podcast since well we missed our anniversary uh, we started recording I think uh, the beginning of February in 2021 and now a year later here we are still recording every now and then uh, sometimes with more frequency sometimes with less frequency but still going analyzing things that I read and <laughs> trying to uh, process stuff by talking out loud about it, Um, I guess. (laughs) Things have changed. I mean, it's mostly me now on the podcast. Monique is uh, not as available anymore, so... But, uh, of course, she she comes back every now and then. Anyway, welcome back. And here we go. It's been... (laughs) It's been a particularly crazy few months. I feel like the news cycles has gone from one intense panic um, button mashing to to, to another, you know, uh, for the last three or four months. And it's not only because of the pandemic but that's where it started it started in november for me from from my point of view you know the way the the things that i've looked at the the from my way of tracking the news um (laughs) it started in like mid-november when omicron emerged and you know there was a lot of speculation as to well if you dealt a little bit more deeply into the the stories. There was a lot of speculation as to where it emerged from, but there was also more openly, I guess, more widely discussed a lot of speculation about how, what the effects of the Omicron variant would be, how it would develop, what this would mean for herd immunity. And, you know, that became a thing again. People thought that, you know, it was going to be over with Omicron. 
And other people were like, well, no. And then like two months into it, three months into it almost, it's like, actually, Omicron is not like one variant. It's like three or four different variants. Now, <laughs> it's, uh, we don't know why. The, anyway, the WHO, which gives these things names, decided to like name this family of variants. Uh, Omicron, even though some of them are as separate from others as, say, Alpha is different from Delta. So, and, you know, I fell into speculating a lot as to whether Omicron came from, potentially, uh, lab experiments. And, like, there's some people that I read who were really into examining that, and other people who I read were very much, well, actually, no, hold your horses, probably not. And, like, one thing that was really key around that was how much different Omicron, you know, the BA1, uh, that was the, the only strain that was really being talk about, talked about at the time. Now BA2 is making headlines. BA1.1 and BA3 are in the mix. I'm sure I'm missing some. I haven't kept as up to date on that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I will... Uh, <laughs> Go back to some sources and see if there's new info that I can glean from there. But for the most part, um, the focus was on BA1. And anyway, it was so different than uh, from other variants. Uh, it had so many mutations that had not been observed in other variants before. Its lineage could not be traced to any other variant except to a distant one, uh, to whatever, whatever was circulating, I think, in March 2020. Um, or was it 20? Yeah, 20, 2020. I think that's it was 2020 or 2021. 2020 makes more sense. Um, anyway, it was it was distant, you know, you could the, the connection to the rest of the family was distant, and so there was a lot of speculation. Maybe it was like serially passaged in a lab, maybe why was it so much more transmissible? And there was some speculation that there was a mouse-related origin, which, you know, brings up labs again, because labs work with mice, labs um, work with humanized mice, mice that have been genetically engineered to produce um, human lung cells uh, within them, so that you can test uh, pathog human pathogens on these mice and they'll respond kind of-ish in a way, or at least their cells, you know, the, the, the virus and the cells uh, will interact in the way that they would on a human host. Anyway, um, there, I feel like that speculation has died down quite a bit. Uh, one important point, which... Uh, a few people have raised is the fact that well um, Omicron might have a human origin and I mean like the, the human origin of Omicron would have I feel like <laughs> I'm trying to say too many things at once the if 
The conversation has started right away, which I don't understand why it didn't. If the conversation has started right away with the fact that there were three different variants, you know, that it was a family of variants, not just one, I think the case for it being a lab-origined variant would have been, like, tempered a bit. Um, I mean, like, one, you can kind of explain, but three, it seems, four, it seems a little bit harder, or, you know, it seems a little bit more, more work had to be done by whoever was producing these variants. I mean, not to say that it didn't come from a lab, but it just would have been good to know, you know, that, that would have been like a good bit of information to know right from the start, that Omicron was a family, not one single variant and yeah ba2 and ba1 are very different they have very different uh sets of mutations some of them overlap but not all of them there's still significant differences between them and ba3 as well uh as far as i know ba3 hasn't proven to be as contagious as ba1 and ba2 uh and ba11 uh 1.1 anyway um, there's still a little, some unexplained things about it, but I feel like the the Omicron story has turned now to like BA2 uh, and the potential uh, havoc that that will create and that is creating in certain countries um, and territories around the world. So that was the big first, the first big scare of <laughs> of Christmas time, and then uh, that was followed by, at least in Canada, <laughs> it seems like the 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 next big scare story was the truckers. I I feel like some people were expecting them that they were gonna like. I don't know what that they were going to take over Parliament in, or you know, invade Parliament in the way that the January six protesters did for three hours, and you know, sit at somebody's desk and take selfies, or <laughs> try to walk away with a lent, uh, with a <laughs> lectern. Uh, what else? Yeah. yeah anyway, or, or yeah, smash windows. Uh, they did cause quite a bit of a scene outside, trying to, well, actually fighting the few police officers that were there. Uh, but, like, I feel like the main difference between that, between January 6th protesters and the trucker convoy, was that the trucker convoy, you knew it was coming for, like, a week. <laughs> they started off in BC, right? So, they, and that's a long drive from BC to Ottawa. And anyway, I won't get too much into it. I already talked about it in like the previous show, like a month ago. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, the, the, the main point I want to highlight is that, you know, the fear factor um, around, but the fear mongering hyped by media and politicians. Politicians were like tripping over themselves 
to condemn or engage with the truckers. Um, they <laughs> one funny thing that happened that I didn't talk about. It's just how how, um, how hard they they tried to make it seem as though um, the trucker convoy was like a foreign intervention. You know, they blamed Americans and Republicans in particular uh, for funding the convoy, even though at least the initial GoFundMe campaign, if I remember correctly, was like, you could, because they leaked, um, they didn't leak the GoFundMe, the, the, uh, they leaked the, the, ne the next one that came out. Um, but GoFundMe showed that like over 80% uh, of the money going towards the trucker convoy was from Canada. It's a, you know, <laughs> you see it happen like in other conflicts. You saw it happen in Libya. You saw it happen in Syria. You saw it happen in Afghanistan, in Iraq, where um, the authorities uh, tell you that the insurgency uh, or whatever, you know, opposition to whatever they're doing whatever the authorities, the people in power are doing, that the opposition to them is really a foreign intervention. This happened in Egypt as well during the, the, the Arab Spring. And, I mean, the Americans have done this plenty, you know, with like how, you know, just like fear-mongering fear the Soviet invasion, basically. <laughs> uh, I mean, nobody uses the word Soviet anymore, not too much. <laughs> but it's basically that. I mean, like they are calling back to the Red Scare, to this uh, fear of communism. Um, by the way, the <laughs> that's part of like the the reason why I made the 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 episode art um, such as it is. It, it, it is to like point out that um, incongruity, that like lack of awareness that, you know, the Soviet Union dissolved 30 years ago and they're just not making a comeback. <laughs> not anytime soon. But anyway, the fear mongering around Russia, foreign intervention, foreign intervention. And then we did that here too. It's foreign intervention, foreign intervention. It, it, like, the government of Canada wishes absolutely to refuse to acknowledge that there would be such a massive, um, or at least such a numerous, um, opposition to mandates, to, to vaccine mandates, to the way they've handled the pandemic. I feel like, yeah, of course, I cannot. <laughs> uh, there, there was enough about the trucker convoy to just like enough red flags around it and Confederate flags that uh, <laughs> I would not want to be associated with them in any way. However, I do think that some of the things that they were protesting were things that you, that many more of us could be protesting. That pandemic has been 
severely mishandled uh, by all forms of government in Canada. Some places have done better for a while. Um, some places have done much worse than others. But generally, my sense is that everybody complains, has been complaining about equally about their local governments uh, in each province in the country. Because they have all failed massively in, you know, in very similar ways. The testing collapsed all around the country around the same time. Canada already was one of the wealthy nations that was conducting the least per capita, per capita testing uh, compared to its to compared to countries with similar amounts of wealth. We were doing this on the cheap, and our testing system collapsed. No more PCR tests, and it's not coming back. They don't want it to come back. Politicians don't want it to come back. They don't give a shit. It's done. It's over. Here, we've been telling you for two years that rapid tests suck. And now, there's this like quick turnaround. Rapid test is all you're getting. <laughs> so, anyway. So, fear of Omicron, fear of the truckers, and then the bigger one, the huge. I didn't know it was going to wrap up. But then the media and politicians, the American politicians, start ramping up the rhetoric around Russia. They're just about to invade Ukraine. 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 And they're keeping, you know, American intelligence is dropping all these dates. And... I feel like for people like me, many people I, I, that I, whose many journalists whose opinions I, I, I find interesting, whose work I like, we're all uh, a little bit hesitant to believe. Well, often a lot hesitant to believe any of this because there, you know, that it just sounded so much like more fear-mongering, hyping up the rhetoric, and it felt like it, you know, the news coming from, you know, like what Vladimir Putin was actually saying, what uh, Vladimir, what's his first name? Anyway, what Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was saying, uh, as well, it just seemed to hint that neither of them was under the impression that an invasion was imminent, or at least not as imminent as the Americans made it sound. And then, <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, it seemed like like a really quick turnaround, they did invade. <laughs> and yeah, and that's where we are. Russia is like, I think about 10 days, maybe 11 days now into the invasion of Ukraine. And they've taken control of certain areas uh, towards the east from what I've seen. I've, I feel like, ugh. It's a frustrating story because it seemed very obvious at the start that it was going to be hard 
to get credible information, following um, what was happening on Twitter. I could see where all of a sudden almost everyone has a Ukraine flag emoji attached to their handle. Okay. Uh, I, you know what? Like, you can feel for the people of Ukraine. You can, you know, empathize with their plight. You don't want them to be invaded. You think Russia's making a big mistake. But, like, ugh, the social media, uh, <laughs> Uh, the desire for people, the, the, the kind of compulsion, compulsion of people to, to make their, their, you know, <laughs> to plant their flag on their handles and, you know, have other markers. I mean, like, it's been around for a while. My first, my, my memory of, like, of this, I think it was, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago, 13 years ago, when Facebook uh, allowed you to do kind of like a rainbow filter on your photo, on your profile photo. And I was like, oh, like, really? It's just like, um, I mean, like now we call it virtue signaling. Uh, <laughs> I forgot that word for a second. But um, it just seems so... Uh, or, or, you know, like two years ago, every corporation putting hashtag BLM somewhere on their propaganda, on their advertising. Um, it just seems so, uh, it's such an empty gesture after a while, right? And people just flock to it. And I mean, like, what does putting a little Ukrainian flag on your on your Twitter handle do say you have like an anti-war uh, stance that's uh you're, you're forgetting a lot of flags <laughs> you are forgetting a lot of flags a lot of conflicts that have been going on for longer um, and regions of the world that don't have white people that's generally like the what 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 shines through through this virtual signaling um anyway what was happening on twitter too is like yeah i was seeing a lot of debunking there's like people were posting images of what was happening in ukraine and then somebody would post an image it's like actually this photo is from like 2018 actually this photo is from like 2021 actually this photo is from like such and such year and that pattern repeated itself a number of times enough to make me really suspicious as to i mean like i i i felt and still do to a large extent like i can't really get a handle on what's going on because there and it's not only coming from like the western media clearly uh, the Russians has, have a vested interest in controlling what information is coming out and, you know, how they look to internally to their own people, you know, the, Rus the Russian government um, and their army. They want to, you know, they want to control how they look to their own people and how they present to the external world uh, to some extent. So, but I feel like it's 
the very it's a very intense uh time to the last few months just going from one fear-mongering story to another and then just feeling the twists uh from from multiple angles of the attempt of trying to manipulate what information you're receiving and how and not only that but you manipulate how you feel about whatever is supposed to scare you at this particular moment i feel like the conflict in the invasion of ukraine uh it seems like a major fucking blunder i don't know um i don't think uh, but i mean i don't think it'll end well but i mean it's <laughs> what war does um but i'm not gonna get into too much of my opinions because i really 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 don't know what's going on there I'm confused more than anything by the situation. I was surprised by the decision to invade by Vladimir Putin. Um I don't know if that's a vindication of the American intelligence agencies to saying that was about to happen. I feel like I'm also hearing the the counterside to that, which is just like the Americans have been like trying to goad Russia into go into going in, into into the invasion uh and i feel like i've read a lot of analysts um who've been saying for since the mid 90s that the expansion of nato uh will inevitably lead to war in ukraine so is it a provocation i mean like that doesn't justify the russian position either i mean like that's just like they fell for the bait um and the ukrainians are the cannon fodder and now we have like the emergence of new and i mean like it's been going on for a while but you have the emergence of like new uh pseudo language uh what, what would you call it what would be the appropriate name for it i'm not sure just like the neologisms that emerge and i feel like we have the dreadful uh non-lethal aid lethal aid just say you're sending fucking weapons you know <laughs> we're sending lethal aid you know as though it's like somewhere you know it's a new humanitarian aid <laughs> you're no longer sending food supplies uh you know you're sending weapons and you want to and it's like this 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 language game to try to like make it fall into like a similar category it's fucking gross and i wish the media wasn't falling into cop i mean like they always do or it's more likely that they will that they will not use the language that those in power want them to use they mimic re reproduce repeat um there's a fucked up language 
um, Canada has been sending <laughs> lots of weapons uh, to Ukraine, which, uh, yeah, anyway, as far as I know, I don't know much, but as far as I know, adding more weapons to a conflict, <laughs> it's, not, it's generally not the best way to resolve it. It will add, I mean, it's, ugh. the Globe and Mail did a story about a young man, 18 years old, Ukrainian born, grew up in Canada, who just, uh, uh, who was leaving. They, they did a story of a little video of him at the airport in Toronto, leaving for Poland with the goal, with the intention of crossing into Ukraine to go fight for his homeland. And, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> it was like such a devilish thing to do, such a heinous thing to do when when young Muslim men were doing that, to go fight in Afghanistan, Iraq, when Muslim countries were being invaded. And now it's just like this glorified thing when it's young white men doing the exact searching foolishly I think for some sort of glory in battle um, there you go yeah uh, I feel like there's been a lot of coverage already about how racist uh, numerous media uh, how, well the number of like racist media moments that have happened in regards to Ukraine, refu Ukrainian refugees, and how much better they're being received. How now, now there's you know, in comparison to refugees from other countries, mostly you know from from dark countries and from non-white countries. Uh, well, countries where the majority of the population is not white, and well, I feel like. <laughs> I'm already delving too deep into this. It's, it's, um, I don't know what's going on. It's concerning and it's going, I hope it ends, I hope it ends soon. Uh, because if not, I, I mean, like, it's a protracted, the, the, the outcome, if it lasts too long, is just a protracted, um, internal conflict within Ukraine in which, you know, much the same way that, like, Iraq was a quagmire for, like, such a long time, and Afghanistan, and, I mean, like, the Soviets, you know, many of them who were Russian were in Afghanistan, too, in the 80s. I mean, well, anyway, and that's what gave rise to Americans and uh, other countries um, funding the Mujahideen, the freedom fighters, which... <laughs> Bum, 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 plot twist led back to 9-11. Anyway, um, so all that's going on. And this is like nuts. I feel like the, the media frenzy is just, just crazy. Uh, and I joked with a friend that uh, I'm kind of glad with how things have, are going because now <laughs> when I talk about COVID, it's like I'm giving people a reprieve from the 
constant doom disaster scenarios being presented in the daily news here we are <laughs> so 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 in that vein i decided that today 30 minutes into this i <laughs> i'll just maybe devote five minutes maybe 15 i don't know to a little story in the new york times regarding two unpublished papers to preprints uh, that came out by various teams of scientists which um, claimed and like first of all uh, during this pandemic time there's been so many papers written about COVID in one way or another. So preprints, you know, we are, they, they've become really, really uh, prevalent. Uh, they're all over the place. And, but generally they're not like headline news at the New York Times, not until they're published by a reputable journal. Being a preprint uh, means that it has not been published by a journal. It's been submitted for publication. It has not been peer reviewed yet. Um, in, I mean, like, we don't, we can't only look at the fact that it's a preprint and dismiss it because it hasn't been published yet. I mean, there are problems with the peer review process and that's also, which is also political in many respects. And, um, and some, uh, um, valid, um, papers don't get published and you can only assume that it's because of political reasons. So, but that brings us back to these two preprints, which haven't been published yet, and then but are being hyped. And um, basically, they both purport to solidify the hypothesis that the coronavirus outbreak, SARS-CoV-2, were initiated in the Huanan uh, seafood wholesale market in Wuhan in late 2019. Two of the two of the the authors of these papers, uh, I don't know if they're both co-authors in both of them. Michael Warby and Christian Anderson. They have they're both virologists who have been very anti-lab leak theory people, very vocal on Twitter and other places, um, saying that the zoonotic origin makes a lot more sense uh, to them and really vilifying anybody who believes that the lab leak is a possible scenario uh, and, well, calling them names online and... I'm making fun of their opinions and you know anyway it's 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 not one-way traffic i mean like the the people who believe who really adamantly believe that the lab leak scenario is the more possible one you know throw their share of punches too so these uh these preprints are from the group of people who have been uh promoting the zoonotic origin of COVID already so it's <laughs> it's funny like the, the what what most critics of this New York Times article have been saying um 
And anyway, the article says that the, you know it praises the new two the, the new the two new papers and presents them as like credible um, defining. Um, I'll, I'll read you the quote, defining evidence, defining uh, analysis that the that things started in the Huanan market. Uh, Michael Warby is quoted as saying, when you look at all the evidence together, it's an extraordinarily clear picture that the pandemic started at the Huanan market. I, I call him a viral, virologist, but he's an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona. Uh, and he did co-author both papers. So, what? So, so anyway, so that's their conclusion. That you know, they're, they're looking at all this data, they're analyzing it in new, fun ways, and it's about 150 pages of uh, papers that claim that the Huanan market is definitely the place where the pandemic started. But <laughs> the, the caveats come in pretty fast. Um, and I feel like the, the, the hardest part, or, or, or the part that they're kind of like conveniently ignoring, is that they still, um, that they're, they're whatever animal supposedly transmitted the virus to humans has still not been found. There's still no intermediary host. And including at the market, uh, maybe by coincidence, probably not, but just the day before, uh, George Gao, um, Chinese scientist, I think he's the head of the Chinese Center for Disease Control, published a paper himself in which they they analyze all the sampling you know they they're releasing data about all the analyze all, all, all about all the all the samples that they took from the Huanan market and they conclusively can point out that there are no animals that had SARS-CoV-2 basically and this is what the critics are saying uh, and the critics, uh, they're numerous and they're the usual lot, just like, you know, Michael Warby and Christian Anderson are the usual suspects in the camp of the pro-zoonotic -zoonoti, uh, origin uh, proponents. There's also Alina Chan and uh, what's his name? Michael Bloom? Is it Michael? Jesse Bloom. Um, who's, who else we got? Uh, anyway, th there's a, uh, Dr. Ebright, um, what's, what's the other critic I'm missing? I feel like I'm missing one person, Alison Young, um, who has done lots of, like, great reporting at, around, like, how often leaks happen in American, uh, bio labs. Uh, all the critics just point out is, like, there's no new evidence. I mean, like they're thinking, they're saying that they've just reanalyzed all evidence, but like the evidence—it's uh, well known that the evidence has gaps, and that um, 
the Chinese CDC and the Hubei CDC, um, which originally was in charge of the situation, they destroyed a lot of the early samples. Uh, they also, um, during the initial phase of trying to search the origin um, of SARS-CoV-2, there was, because the first, because many of the first few cases were traceable to the Huanan market, there was a sort of um, ascertainment bias by which the scientists are looking for a connection to the market before they test somebody to see if they have SARS-CoV-2. So, yeah, that in, those initial clusters do center around the market, but eventually, and, and, and eventually, you know, COVID spreads rather quickly, so it goes out, and you know, then it's the the map resembles better the population distribution, the the and over more than anything else, the elderly population distribution in the city of Wuhan. So, so going back to the media, one of the authors, Carl Zimmer, uh, who, anyway, maybe I won't get into him. I, I don't know much about him. I don't think I follow his name. I feel like I, I just realized that he wrote a very uh, positive uh, profile of Xi Zhengli, the head of the um, Wuhan Institute of Virology. And um, so maybe he has a vested interest in... I don't know. I feel like it's kind of hidden exactly like what the machinations are that led the New York Times to promote these two preprints so loudly um, before being beaten back. I mean, like, I don't know how successful it's been. I feel like I, like, how do I gauge, gauge this media stuff? Um, but it's been beaten back. And, you know, there's a lot more caveats in the, you know, going from the original publication on February 26th to what it is now. They've introduced a lot more caveats. They've introduced um, some critics of the papers. Uh, they've introduced quotes from the formerly mentioned Jesse Bloom, who says, I think what they're arguing could be true. That's a, in quotes. For, uh, but I don't think the quality of the data is sufficient to say that any of the scenarios are true with confidence. So, <laughs> which, uh, which is where we are with the lab leak theory too. Uh, you know, it could be true, but there is not enough evidence to say it with confidence. Um, I spent today morning listening to an interview with two different scientists, Yuri Dagan and Stuart Neal, uh, who each one, you know, Yuri Dagan, I've talked about him before in the podcast. He's a member of Drastic. Uh, did a lot of like the early analysis that kind of like raised the flag about potentially the potential lab leak 
origin of SARS-CoV-2. And Stuart Neal is a virologist who, who has been in the other camp. And it was so... I, and, and it's so much nicer to listen to two people who disagree, have a discussion live, you know, on video. I didn't watch the video. I just listened to it. Uh, but it's so much better to <laughs> to listen to them, listen to them, be reasonable with each other, be amicable with each other, than um, than Twitter. Uh, Twitter is just such a uh, it's such an ugly medium, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. I feel like I'm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I have an account in which I just follow boxing news, and it's anyway it's full of drivel too, but. It is so much nicer than to look at the actual news, uh, which is just so much, ugh. And the comments, ugh. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Alina Chan and Michael Warby and Ling Fa Wang and another person who I'm forgetting uh, also had like a nice conference call in which, you know, people from who lean... Uh, who look at the evidence and lean in different ways, more towards lap leak, more towards um, zoonotic origin. Uh, yeah, it's nice to have a competition between people who disagree. Uh, that is not on Twitter. I feel like it's so much more productive. They can, and they also, it's also much easier, it seems, to reach points of agreement. Um, I feel like, yeah, at the end of the conversation, Stuart Neal and Yuri Dagan, they both agree. That's like, you know what would be awesome? If we could know exactly what was in the freezers at the Wuhan Institute, Institute of Virology and the summer of 2019. Um, yeah, I mean, like there was, there was a surge of, of uh, a virulent flu going around in in Wuhan and as far back I think it can be traced back to October uh, the database that held um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology had a database that held a lot of the of their of the info around the viruses that, that they worked on it was publicly shared for years and then it suddenly was shut down in September 2019, members of Drastic discovered this, and uh, there's, there still hasn't been like a good explanation as to why that was taken offline at the time. Uh, but it kind of fits the timeline that they knew what was going on, or somebody knew that a virus had leaked from a lab. <laughs> I tend to, yeah, I, I tend to like. Uh, lean towards the lap leak scenario, but like actually, like listening to Stuart Neal, I was like, oh, maybe. The, I mean, like it's nice to listen to him. I feel like his Twitter persona comes across very bullish. Um, but you know, listening to this, listening to him talk, he is kind of obnoxious, and he interrupts you lots, and he is a bit bullish, but it's not in kind of like. Uh, it's not necessarily the mean-spirited kind of harassment. Uh, or, you know, it's, that, that seems to... Anyway, it comes across really mean-spirited on Twitter. 
I feel like in person he, he could laugh and he could like have a lot of points of agreement with Dagan. Um, and he concedes too that, you know, there, there's, and I feel like this, this is why things get murky. Uh, it's because like there, it's thrown into two camps, lab leak and zoonotic. Um, and that kind of like muddies the fact that it could be both at the same time. Uh, and this is something that, you know, scientists often, you know, because they're the, the, the zoonotic origin people are often like fighting against, uh, what they perceive to be like the bioweapon side of things, uh, or the, the idea that it was like a, extensively engineered in some way uh, in a lab. You know, that's what they're fighting against. And whereas the lab leak people feel like they're actually, they're, they're fighting against the people who believe that there must be an intermediary host somewhere. Uh, you know, and, well, when there's no evidence for that. But there's... There's, there's a lot of overlap between the two scenarios. Primarily that it could be a naturally occurring virus that, um, was collected by members of the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and brought to Wuhan by them. And at one, at some point accidentally released while they were trying to analyze it or play with it or do something to it, right? So. That is both zoonotic, you know, without having manipulated in any way. So that's both like zoonotic and a lab leak. It's both. Um, and I feel like there's, there's a lot of scenarios that overlap, uh, like that. So, so it's nice to hear them actually have a conversation. People with different points of view actually have a conversation about it, uh, and realize that there's a lot of points of agreement, even if the final analysis leads to to various conclusions. They did this silly thing where they mentioned what percentage uh, of certainty they have about their own or, or their leanings. And I feel like I agree with Alina Chan when she says, like, that's not very useful. Like, how can I be 80% certain of something when what I'm really sure of is that I don't have enough evidence, right? <laughs> and that's what uh that's really like where where we are with the origins of covid and where a lot of people are a lot of the the lab leak people are clamoring for more evidence better research better studies better access uh access primarily because we don't really know what was happening at the wuhan institute of virology we don't really know what information ecohealth alliance uh, who was funding uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, partially. Uh, what they know, um, Peter Daszak has lied many times. The head of the EcoHealth Alliance has lied many times. Or maybe he doesn't lie. Maybe he just was, which seems less likely, though, is that he's totally unaware as to what's going on in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um like one small thing that comes to mind right away is that he said that they had no life baths there and 
you know, you can find pictures online, drastic found pictures online of like live bats. Uh, the one is sort of virology and submissions for patents for bat cages uh, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? So uh, either Dashak intentionally lied or he's like unaware of what's or what he's funding. The other like big cloud of like, we don't know what's going on there. It comes from like the American scientists and American government, which have been really reluctant um, who also have like extensive ties with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, you know, the NIH and other USAID and other government, American government agencies have funded partially the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So there's a big cloud of like things we don't know, uh, all around and it's hard. Um, anyway, and I feel like that's, that is like the main thing around the origins of COVID. How much is not known? How much is with being withheld? Um, like that database that I was just mentioning. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll just leave it there. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, one funny story that I came across. Uh, if you made it this far, you've made it to the funny bit. <laughs> uh, one funny story that I came across. I'm, I won't look it up. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look it up after I'm done recording and I'll post a link to it. But uh, apparently there's, there's a there's a restaurant, a Canadian themed restaurant in Paris that is receiving a lot of negative attention for its perceive ties to Russia. What does this restaurant specialize in? Poutine. <laughs> so, yeah, by coincidence, <laughs> fries with cheese curds and gravy happens to share the same name as the leader of the Russians of the Russian government. Um, and yeah, this, uh, this restaurant in Paris is receiving a lot of negative attention for it. Uh, I hope they don't go out of business. Uh, maybe they'll post an explanation in the window or something. I hope it's, I hope it's okay. I hope nobody comes and, and throws, uh, I don't know, something at them. Whatever. I'll find the story. I'll post a link. All right. Uh, yeah. I'll talk to you again soon. Hopefully the next break won't be as long as this one. Anyway.